let's be clear here. I did not take animal drugs because I had an interviewer from a newspaper the other day ask me that. No, a doctor, a human doctor, who is ubiquitously known as a voice doctor, turns up as a, at the O2 Arena because I'd just done too many shows and I couldn't say a word. But you can take 60 milligrams of prednisolone and by the way, you are going to walk on clouds for a few hours and then you need to understand you have to rest because you are going to crash and burn. So I thought, hit me. Uh, so she did, and I had an injection, uh, trousers down, bottom open. I, I thought to myself, did this ever happen to Bono? Because I thought in this room with the autoery, that's genuinely what was going through my head. There was a jab in my ass. Anyway, had that, and, and then she gave me, she sent the guy... To the, with the prescription, and the pharmacy at the O2 Arena is like way across the concourse, and it was closing at 6 p.m., and this was 5 to 6. So the guy runs like Billy-O across the concourse to, to get... comes back with a little packet of prednisolone, and I'm thinking as I'm taking it, well, this is what I give to dogs and cats all the time for, you know, infl inflammatory disease. <laughs> it's the same drug. And the newspaper interviewer was like, oh, well, you took animal drugs. And I'm like, no, mate, it's the same drug. That's the whole point of one medicine. It's the same. <laughs> He's such a card. Right, uh, an amazing conversation with Noel, the super vet Fitzpatrick, is on the way. This episode of How to Out is brought to you by MS Plank Kitchen with over 100 vegan, friendly, tasty treats to eat on the go or toss into the basket to take back home and enjoy with the fam and or friends. I like at the moment their no chicken gyoza with the side of their vegan coleslaw. Mm -mm. But now, back to the show. I must introduce today's show, the super vet and his new book, Noel Fitzpatrick Talks, How Animals Saved His Life. Cue the conversation. So how are you, Noel? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. What does good mean? Well, good means that I got out of the right side of the bed and I wore a shirt, uh, which is bizarre. I, you, you, I don't think you've ever seen me in such a coloured shirt, have you? No, it's more me than you. Correct. So I got out of bed this morning. I'd been recording the master interviews for the Christmas episode of the Supervet till 1.30 this morning. And I thought, do I really need to do that the night before I do Chris's show in the morning? And the answer is yes, because they're in the last week of the edit. <laughs> so uh, they did that. And then I got out of bed this morning after four hour, four, four and a half hour sleep. And uh, I, I, I went into the little kitchen beside my bedroom at work and Kira woke up at the same time. She sleeps, sleeps beside my bed and I put my hands on her head uh, because she, she is deaf. And she just looked up and licked my face. And then I walked into the kitchen and the first shirt that leaped off the rack at me was a big breakfast reminiscent shirt. So I thought, well, I'm going to see Chris, so I'll wear that. And, and it was so funny because it made me smile. I didn't even know you own shirts like that, and I've I, known you for 20 correct. years. Correct. Is that not one of mine that I left at your house? No, <laughs> it's actually bought for me by, by a publicist lady yes. who wanted me to appear colourful in some kind of photograph. I've only ever worn it once for that particular photograph, and I never wear it. How does it make you feel? 
It, well, this morning it made me feel joyous because I thought I was going into the big breakfast. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. And I was thinking, because you, you remember when I, I mean, when I was, when you started out doing that, I was trying to find my feet as a vet and I'd occasionally catch it and I'd occasionally think, oh my goodness, these people are having great lives. Why am I, what, 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 these people are having great fun every day. I'm, I'm just, you know, I've got my hand up a cow's behind. And uh, I, it was escapism. Big Breakfast for me was pure escapism whenever I got to see it. And it made me laugh. It made me laugh that you were all so stupid all of the time, falling over chairs and everything was funny. There was nothing not funny. And I thought, well, today's the day, if ever, to put on the shirt. And and it's it was hilarious to me as I... as I Because the cat, the wonderful people uh, here... At Virgin sent a cab, which was a, a deep luxury because it's the first time I've left the practice not to go to my own house for months, literally months, because I've been doing the book. So I thought, wow, what a great day. And I got in the cab, put on this flowery shirt, and I was feeling so good that I thought, I don't want an introduction on Virgin Radio. I just feel too good. So I wrote an introduction for Dapper Dave instead. Who does uh, all the introductions? Yeah, who does all the introductions. Yeah, so that was where that came from, a place of joy and then wanting to share that. So Dapper Dave was my my conduit, my trajectory out into the world of joy because I thought, well, if I give that to him, all right, in the back of the cab, then... Uh, what I'm trying to do in the world today uh, or, or I, how I feel today will transmit. And so far, it's going all right, I think. It's going very well. So you have a so lastminute.com for everything. Where, do, where does that come from? Because mm. mm. you you, you, that is your creed. Yeah, well, yeah, referring specifically to the book, uh, I don't think the, any publisher, let alone Trapeze Orion, have ever had somebody which is a total nightmare like me. To, I mean, like beyond nightmare. Because you can imagine, I'm writing the book since last December, 20, December 2019. Yeah, that's right. And then, of course, you know, they know I got to go to work and they know I, I'm only going to be writing on a Friday night or at the weekend. But what they didn't reckon on was me breaking my neck, not being able to write, uh, corona hitting, having difficulties at work. And then none of us saw coming was uh, a van around the corner that n nearly killed me and then killed, nearly killed. Kira, my little border terrier dog. Truly the most traumatic experience of my life so far. Um, I'll get back to your question, which is last minute. But it was the most traumatic experience of my life because, not because of what happened, because I deal with road traffic accidents every day, but because I was two feet away from the wheel while I heard her body explode. And it just ripped through me like a hurricane I I mean I can't the, the I can't, even now the feelings that flow over me when I think about it are horrendous it rips me open and reveals every scar I ever had and for the last five weeks we're battling to save her life and she's doing okay now She ha she's had multiple surgeries and blood transfusions and all kinds of stuff and operating on her was tough but I, I think I believe we're doing the right thing for her which is important and the book's a lot about that but more importantly, about last minute, about the question you asked me, um, every day I deal with last minute stuff. There's always the next emergency. And it's always been thus. Since I was five, the sheep is lambing. It's last minute. We can't get to church. It's last minute. We miss going swimming. I never learned to swim. There was always an excuse not to go swimming. 
um, it was always, oh, it's about to rain. We got a last minute to save the barley. Um, oh, you can't, you can't take a rest now because we won't get the silage in in time. So for all of my life, and I only realized this quite recently, actually, that by default, Daddy, who was a wonderful man, but also a workaholic, by default, made me feel almost guilty for wasting minutes. And so everything becomes last minute. And with Kira, I turned to her 10 days or so before the book was due. The last chapter wasn't written and the publisher was going mental. And they said to me that day, okay, we're going to have to pull the book unless you do this, 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 and this. And what this, this, and this was, was nigh on impossible to deliver because we had a certain print date we had to meet and they couldn't push the print date because there was other books to be printed. And that's it. You missed the date, you missed the date, and book doesn't happen. And this book is is very much about now. Like you can't, there's no point in publishing it in a year's time because there's a lot of coronavirus and other stuff in it. You know, it's, it's not relevant in a year's time. It's just, you may as well just put it in the bin and start all over again. And I and I, I didn't want to do that, but I wanted to save the life of Kira more. And I just sat there in the in the basket with her and I said, Kira, do I do I finish this? And she just looked up at me and said, eh? <laughs> and, and I mean, I took that as a yes. It might have been a, I think it's going to be a not great if you do that. But I I did it as much for her and for her legacy as anything else. But and And yeah, the book's raw. The book is raw. But my goodness, I haven't read the book yet because I haven't had time. My understanding is the audiobook's on sale, but I have to say to anybody who's waiting on that, you need to wait a little bit longer. I'm sorry, I apologize. It's not recorded yet. I have started recording it, so I've now read the first four chapters, but I haven't read the book beginning to end, and I've never held the book until this morning in your in your um in your studio here because I've never seen a physical copy copy because last week the publishers my my secretary wrote to them on Friday and they said um well, we haven't got any. We haven't got the book. It came out yesterday, last Thursday, and uh, they said, "Well, the priority was to get it out to retail." You know, so it's fair enough because it's written for the people. It's not written for me. It's written for someone else. You know, so it wasn't a priority for me to read it clearly, but I've never actually read it. And so the last chapter, which is about the accident with Kira, was just stream of consciousness. It was me literally sitting down for sixteen hours on that Monday before the Wednesday and just saying, "Fine, I have to write this now." And it's it's it came out just the same as as a thought, a constant stream of thought. And I don't really know how it's come out in the end, but it came from a place inside me that I didn't know was there until it happened. So in terms of last minute, yeah, I'm lastminute.com, but usually I deliver. And in the operating theater, you have to deliver. Which is, that's the best explanation I've ever heard you give of the way you live your life. <laughs> because um, cause it's true, because you spend most of your life doing that, doing your job. And, you know, and if you're in the emergency services, that's exactly um, the philosophy that you should live by. But it doesn't work with life. And that's where the conflict comes in, isn't it? Because, you know, life isn't an emergency. Death is, maybe. Birth can be as, as well. But life is a constant. Your life doesn't have... That sort of um, explosion, the priming, uh, you know, the, the detonation and then the explosion and then the aftermath and the drama, you know, life, life is, has its dramatic moments, but it's not it's not usually dramatic. It's usually quite mundane, you know, and that's something you've shied away from because it's anything but lastminute.com. And then when you hanker after 
and I can say this because I'm your friend, I'm not judging you, I promise you I'm not, when you hanker after a bit of what other people might have, you go, you don't speak the right language. You, don't, you haven't learned yeah. the language, have yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what you're referring to there is probably things like, oh, I'm 52, how come I haven't you know, got married and had kids? Uh, you and I have had this conversation before. And actually I talk about it in the book and I use the metaphor of playing a, a guitar. I said earlier in our little conversation just now that there wasn't time to go to swimming lessons when I was a kid. And I, when I heard Led Zeppelin for the first time on an old Sony radio that I got from a scrap heap and then built a, an aerial out of a coat hanger, I thought that was the most magical thing that ever happened in my life. Literally, Stairway to Heaven was the, the most magical thing that ever happened. And so I wanted to play guitar. But you, you're in the middle of nowhere in Ireland. There is no guitar. You know, it's like, that's an impossible dream. And then I saw Rocky and I thought Rocky lived in Philadelphia. So I wanted to go there. And that too was an impossible dream. I mean, I'd never even been to Dublin. And and the, I remember the first time I went to Dublin in a cattle truck uh, with the man who was driving the cattle from our farm to effectively what was the factory, which is really sad to look back on now. But... But it was an amazing adventure. And I, I, I had an Ovaltine tin of, uh, that, that I saved all my little treasures in, which were usually the toys that came out of Christmas crackers or something like that, my little box of toys. And I was going on this journey, this epic journey to Dublin. And I'd, I, I, it's interesting you use the word hanker because I've never coveted or hankered material things. I've actually... The simplest things, you know, like the little Christmas cracker things. I'm sure that little box of Ovaltine, unless my sister has taken it, like my Nashard love puppet from the Beano, is there somewhere in my in the stuff that came from home. The little things just meant so much to me. And I have been um, envious of people who are really talented at, doing something like playing guitar that I, I've tried to have, less, have lessons maybe a hundred times and eventually four or five teachers just thought, well, look, it's midnight already. The lesson was supposed to be at 10 p.m. I mean, what are you going to do at that point? You know, you guys still in theatre. Are you going to, like, not do that? So the crux of what you're asking me is something's got to give. You can't be obsessive, compulsive, uh, and I say in the book workaholism for the finally I've realized is not a badge of honor. Because my daddy would say, you know, idle, the devil will find things for idle hands to do. So I guess I thought that workaholism was a badge of honor and I was trying to emulate my daddy. And all the while I was looking for some acknowledgement from him or thank, you know, well done. That was never going to happen. It was just never going to happen because wonderful as he was, he was a man of few words and he, he was a farmer. So it was expected. So to cut to the crux of your issue, you can hanker after whatever you like, but unless you're prepared to give something up to get it, uh, to spend time with someone you love, like you and I haven't seen each other since spring, early spring, because life has taken took over for for me with a broken neck and other things, and for you with a family, and we just and COVID happened, and we just end up in our bubbles, and the people you love and care about, like I do for you. Uh, you, the wonderful thing about that I would say is that you always know that the people who really matter will be there in five years even if you haven't spoken to them for five minutes you know uh, and that's wonderful but 
you can't you don't you can't have that friendship and love in your life unless you make some effort. And I have have not been married and have not made enough effort in those areas of my life. And if I want to play guitar or get married, have kids or whatever else, people in the in my work life um, will need to get used to a different me and I'll need to get used to a different me. So in direct answer to your question of... In direct answer <laughs> Excuse to... Excuse me, that was not a direct in, answer. <laughs> in direct answer to your question, I have made some changes to try and make that happen in terms of my work colleagues and getting them more involved. Because okay. I found delegation really difficult. That's so interesting because in the book, you mentioned drug addiction, alcohol addiction, sex addiction, whatever addiction. Not once, not twice. You keep mentioning it. And it's quite obvious to me you haven't read your book back. Because the first time you say it, you go, like people might get addicted to drugs or alcohol or sex. Chapter one. Chapter three. Like people <laughs> might get. I'm like, do they really? Ooh. Yeah. He's, he keeps, I, 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 I'm I haven't read it. You keep saying it all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. And it's like, you so haven't read your book back. No. <laughs> because, by the way, it, I didn't mind it at all. But you, it's like, it's like a, a chorus. It's like a chorus in a song. But it's the same paragraph about every three chapters. Wow. And it's, you know, with reference to that. So, you know, uh, Russell Brand, your new friend. Can we just say there, what's, what's not truly beautiful to me is for the first time in our 20 or so years of knowing each other, you've shown like one molecule of jealousy, which is amazing and beautiful. And I love you for it. Thank I'm you. I'm making up for last time. It's more than a molecule. Thank you. Um, no, but Russell knows this better than I do because he's written brilliantly about 12 Steps and he talks about it so articulately. And, you know, he has first-hand anecdotal experience of it, which I don't. Um, you know, for um, uh, an addict to to begin their 12-step journey back to themselves or finding themselves, the first thing they do ha have to do is recognise their addiction, you know, acknowledge their addiction um, and accept their addiction. And this leads, I suppose, to giving up what they're currently um, exposing themselves to, feeding their addiction, doesn't mean they're not addictive, which is why they have to remain in recovery, but it, remain, it, it helps them to give up the latest um, poison that's feeding their addiction uh, from the outside in, which, of course, we know never works. So your addiction in those terms would be your job, your practice, your employees, your dogs and your cats and your clients, your patients and their parents. So, you know, if you draw that parallel you might have to give all that up because that is your current addiction because you are the addict. And then, you know, I don't, again, I'm completely unqualified. I actually don't know what I'm talking about. But, you know, I, I do know that alcoholics don't try not to drink alcohol. Yes. Um, if you're a workaholic, then, and if, if they were, if alcoholics were workaholics, they try not to drink work. So how are you going to stop drinking work? Well, that's a, a very poignant observation on the book and you're quite right I've literally never read it beginning to end so there's probably some there's more than a bit of repetition and there's probably more than a bit of grammatical and syntax error which I, I have no idea such is life uh, in the in the just to put it in context of my excuse for that on the day it was due to publish be published I it was being typeset and printed 
it was all obviously supposed to be delivered many months before. And on the subject of Russell Brand, it turns out I have the same producer for my audiobook, which I've only just met because I've only just started. I knew there was it. something going on. I've only just started it. But he told me, You're such an idiot, Noel. Do you realize that Russell writes his book and, and then does the audio before he prints his final book? And I'm like, Well, I've never read my book. It's just, every page is a surprise to me. And I'm like, Oh, I said that on page 77. <laughs> and I'm like, Page, I'm only on page 101. Uh, anyway, the the point of any aholism is you're running away from something, and usually it's yourself or something deep inside yourself that you either don't want to acknowledge, refuse to acknowledge, or want to bury so deep that you have to run. And I talk in the book about my discovery of yogic philosophy and samskaras and deep ingrained psychological patternings that come from maybe from the womb, maybe from your youth, maybe from other things that you don't know about. And I've been lucky enough to be exposed to people who have helped me to look at that a little bit. And I talk about that in the book. And I talk about trying, having a go at meditation and other things that uh, might help to explore that. But to cut to the chase, I don't think any aholism is beneficial and it's easy to justify what I do because it's virtuous unlike taking cocaine or being completely knackered drunk all the time what I do is praised like my daddy used to praise it and it's only recently occurred to me and this is 40 years on now that I was getting the same acknowledgement from people. Oh, oh, you're great because you put in all this effort. Yeah, yeah, seven days a week and not sleeping. Oh, sure, that that's really great. That, that I'm going to last a long time doing that. And then falling down the stairs and breaking my neck made me realize, well, I'm going to last zero time doing that, zero time. Like not, not even the next five minutes doing that. And I'm lying in the hospital. I remember vividly lying in the, in the hospital looking at the stains on the ceiling while there was a man who was in the very last stages of his life opposite me and they asked him, do you want to sign a do not resuscitate form? And he'd been through the war. He'd been through all kinds of stuff. Turned out a lovely guy, just in the kiosk next to me. And I'm like, man, okay, all righty. And I had this big bang on my prefrontal cortex and I looked into the neurophysiology of that and it turns out that, that's, that that overrides your amygdala, which is your flight or flight mechanism all the time. And some, a lot of people that have a big bang on their prefrontal cortex, it disrupts their protection mechanism they've had for all of their lives. And the amygdala suddenly goes, hey, look at all this trauma you've stored. Let's bring that out into the fore, you big prefrontal cortex. You're no longer there. Goodbye. We're going to ha- give you all these ghosts and demons to deal with while you're locked down, by the way. And you're lying in your bed, you know, in a semi-paralysis kind of state. And I uh, realized that it is likely that I will help more animals if I wise up a bit and get a bit of a life. The problem with that is that uh, the expectations of people, i.e. Mary with her dog Fido, has no idea in that moment in time that that she's not the only one. And yesterday, for example, which was Sunday, I phoned 16 people about their animals because I felt 
that nobody else could have those conversations because of the nature of the implants, etc. And one of the big problems I've got is I've now narrowed myself into a field where the amount of knowledge about that field isn't yet enough among all the other people to answer the questions. And they realize that they would have to make a big sacrifice in their lives to get that knowledge. And when you train as a surgeon, I know I'm going on a bit, but this has all become apparent to me. When you train as a surgeon, what happens is you go to vet school or you go to human medical school, you become a doctor, you become a vet. And people think, oh, yeah, you're a vet. You can do everything now. No, you can't. No, you can't. How could you do everything? You just learned it all from a book for five years. Then you do you do general practice or whatever. You maybe become very good at that. You maybe become very good at holding paws, holding hands. And then if you want to specialize, you need to do an internship. You need to do a residency. By the time you've done that, it's six or seven years down the line. And then you're, you're in your late 20s, early 30s. You, If you have a partner, you might want to have a family. You might want to do other things. Well, what? You want to start another learning curve at age 30? to then do another six years learning advanced stuff before you know you're 40. Well, people don't want to do that. And and I was, wasn't clever enough or wasn't good enough for whatever reason to get an internship or residency, so I had to make my own. And then I always felt inadequate, still feel inadequate every day. And my next stop is is the only op that matters. And then I I think to myself, well... Like I, I wouldn't let anybody else operate on Kira's orthopedic problems because I thought, well, if it goes wrong, I'll, I'll never be able to forgive myself. And unfortunately, I have that association with all of my patients because I care desperately. But I'm now in a very narrow field where it turns out I'm the only person in the practice that can do the op, even though there's 250 plus people there. So what I'm hoping over the next five years is that the people want to take one bit of that. So maybe one operation out of the 30 or 50 or whatever number that are super specialized. Maybe they want one or two. And then if I had 10 people that could each do one or two of those things, then then maybe I could not feel so guilty. Because the worst thing about addiction with workaholism is the reverse of alcoholism or drug addiction. You feel guilty for not doing it as opposed to feel guilty for doing it. And that's the worst part, which is only an epiphany for me, because it's all, you know, oh, no, work, I feel guilty. Well, really? Well, all the people don't want you to have a life? No. So uh, my friend from school, Seamus, recently said to me, take an 80-centimeter long piece of string, cut 52 off. That's what you got left. And by the way, mate, you almost ripped that up completely by falling down the stairs. He says he says 75. Oh, did he say so? Is that in the book? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about 75 because it's about useful years-ish. Yeah, and now yeah, that yeah. one way or another. What's interesting about what you just said is everything, and in particular this bit, um, is the fact that you started that talking about stripping your work commitments back, like an alcoholic might start talking about managing his drinking. Like, I won't drink Monday to Friday, but I'll still drink Saturday and Sunday. You're still in denial of it. Oh, yes. Because you and I had this conversation the very last time we met. And you said to me, mate, if it's that much of a problem, why don't you just sell it all? Just just leave it. And I said, I can't because, 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 because. And you said, excuses, 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 excuses. And... The whole, I talk about this quite a lot in the book, 
the whole landscape of veterinary medicine has changed. And I worry about that. And I worry about the future of animal care. And I still, I, I can't help, I, I know this sounds really, ugh, it sounds it sounds icky even before I say it, but if you're trying to build the Avengers, you just always hope that the Avengers are going to be there, you know? Yeah. And that the Hulk is going to be there and Ant-Man's going to be there and that Tony Stark's going to, at the end of the day, to pull them together and yeah. it's going to be okay. Yeah. And I, I can't, and, and in my head, Vetman has been there since I was 10. So in my head, I'm giving up on Vetman if I give up. And then the Avengers can never get formed. And I want the Avengers to save the world. And so I, I need to do something unlike what you just said with alcoholism. I'm just going to drink Monday to Friday. I'm not going to drink at weekends. I need to find a way where work becomes part of rather than the whole of. And I haven't quite figured that out yet. You're right. No, no, it's not about being right or wrong. It's just, again, um, it's interesting that you recall our last conversation in the spring because I did say just sell it, but I wasn't flippant. You know, um, it was, it was, I get it, I get it, I get it. And uh, your practice that you built up is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It's, it's world leading. The Cancer Center in Guildford as well is, is amazing. It's, you've created miracles. You've, you're, you're, you're an amazing human being. You know, if you, if you, if you went back in a time machine and gave all this up, 20 years ago you still you've still put more into life than most people leave life having um contributed but i just said it was a response to your refrain of oh this 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 is well because it's about macro decisions not micro decisions because you can make micro decisions you know i've found this out you can make micro decisions hoping they will give you the macro decision or or make the macro decision for you so like let me ask you a question then if i'm because i never feel great I truly don't. I never feel like, oh, well, you did a fabulous job there or whatever. <laughs> I, I, I just never feel like that. So I know. Why, why do you feel, how do you think, if you have a perpetual feeling of inadequacy and you think, okay, well, you, 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 yeah, you've provided a, a roof for, for all of these people to work for. Sure, they could work for someone else, but I think it would be different. It wouldn't be the family that I know and love, like the Fitz family or the Avengers that I truly believe are the best in the world of what they do. Um, how do you, how do you, how have you managed? I, I, well, what's interesting with you, you have had children and they have changed your perspective, but also you made a conscious decision that your life needed to change. Yes and no. I mean, there's so many answers to your question. So you talk about imposter syndrome in the book, yes. which a lot of people are talking about now in their books, because I read these books for a living. And I don't read that many from my friends, and none at all apart from yours from my best friend, because you're my best friend. Um, but two things they have in common in these books at the moment. One is, everybody's talking about imposter syndrome, and everyone's talking about screen time. Everyone. They're, they're the two things that, that, that come, at, come at you all the time. And imposter syndrome, um, low self-esteem, all these different things. You know, you say, I never feel great. I, I just don't think I've ever done good enough. Right. Now, is that you or is that your ego? Oh, totally ego. Right. So it's not you. Yeah. So it's not you saying that. It's your ego saying that. And there are two egos. There's the useful one, which is the real ego. And then there's the troublesome one, which is the false ego. And the false ego needs feeding all the time, fueling all the time. And it's 
its um, its reason for being is low self-esteem. So it thrives on, on your low self-esteem. So that's what's eating away. Because uh, you're fantastic. You're a fantastic human being. That's the end of it. Sorry. Sorry, Noel's ego. Deal with it. He's a fantastic human being. But the closer you get, and this is only my experience, the closer I get, I got, one gets, two, conquering one's false ego. By the way, it's never conquered. It becomes a practice. The more extreme it has to make your problems because it realizes it's about to lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the context of that, and I, I know this is supposed to be you asking me questions, but I'm genuinely intrigued now that it occurs to me. In your media career, as you went through all of that, just drawing parallels with my veterinary career, one of the key central stories of the book is an accusation of um, over-treatment, of malpractice uh, taken by other veterinary surgeons against me because they felt that I had uh, gone too far in trying to put uh, provide three bionic legs for a tortoise. Now, Hermes. Hermes. The mighty Hermes. Yes. And I thought, and I genuinely, truly, hand on heart, thought I was doing my best, got all the right advice, got the exotic species experts involved and did my best for, for the patient. And, and by the way, they said I was responsible for the entirety of the journey. And I, I'd only seen the patient twice for a period of just over a week on both occasions. But that's neither here nor there. My question to you was, in your media career, I'm wearing a big breakfast shirt here, and you come through all that media career from early, you know, from Warrington right through, you must have had people along the way that told you you were crap and that told you, you that, that, uh, and that, that were difficult to deal with. How did you manage to cope with all of that and still find the integrity of yourself because that's what I really battled with. Because when they put, when that accusation came, I just it was the morning after I'd done the O2 Arena, which was the biggest gig of my life as a vet. It was a very strange 24 hours for you. Oh, man. Because it started off with you losing your voice. Yes. As well. And then then saying <laughs> yes to drugs you'd never... Yes. You, you did, you'd administered before to animals, but you'd never heard of humans taking. Yeah. And, and, and let's be clear here. I did not take animal drugs because I had an interviewer from a newspaper the other day ask me that. No, a doctor, a human doctor, who is ubiquitously known as a voice doctor yeah. turned up at this is the begin at the beginning of the book turns up as uh, at the O2 arena because I'd just done too many shows and I couldn't say a word I literally could could not say a word that's happened to you once hasn't it you couldn't do the show yeah. you could not speak yeah. so my larynx was all doing whatever it does swollen whatever else and the only way out of that is they say to you you can have one last hurrah you can do this once you can't do this all the time because it's going to mess you up. But you can take 60 milligrams of prednisolone now, which is an anti-inflammatory steroid. And by the way, you are going to walk on clouds for a few hours. And then you need to understand you have to rest it because you are going to crash and burn. Right? Now, I knew I could stay quiet for, you know, forever after that because I'd just gone back to operate. So I thought, hit me. So she did. And I had an injection. <laughs> trousers down bottom open, I, I thought to myself, did this ever happen to Bono? Because I thought in this room with the auto arena, that's genuinely what was going through my head. There was a jab in my ass. Uh, I wondered if he ever loses his voice and have to do this. And I thought, well, I must really mess with a singer. Anyway, had that. <laughs> and, and then she gave me, she sent the guy to the, with the prescription and the pharmacy at the O2 Arena is like way across the concourse and it was closing at 6pm and this was 5 to 6. So the guy runs like Billy-O across the concourse to, to get, comes back with a little packet of prednisolone and I'm thinking as I'm taking it, 
well, this is what I give to dogs and cats all the time for, you know, infl- inflammatory disease. <laughs> it's the same drug. And the newspaper interviewer was like, oh, well, you took animal drugs. And I'm like, no, mate, it's the same drug. That's the whole point of one medicine. It's the same. And anyway, because it's illegal, obviously, for a veterinary surgeon to self-prescribe. I emphasise again, to avoid legal problems. Uh, This was prescribed by the voice doctor. Anyway, the point that you're getting to is you go to... The point that you, you asked me about, it's, it's like Billy Connolly in a stand-up show this podcast because Billy is like, sees some bloke walking into the audience and eventually comes back to the point about an hour later after he's talked about his prostate like being an aquarium and, oh, there's a guy rambling in the, in the corridor. And this is the podcast like that. So uh, <laughs> I uh, the point you were making is that I came back from the auto arena, no voice, following morning in my practice. My practice manager, Brian, is a, a Scottish guy. He's usually very chirpy comes in with just a really dour look on his face. And by the way, I'm going back to do a euthanasia on that morning that I feel I have, to, that I should do. It comes back to work holiday again. I feel a moral responsibility that I, for, to hold that family's hand. Anyway, I'm going to do a euthanasia and he lands a letter on my desk from my governing body telling me that four other vets have complained against me and want me to go through a full disciplinary hearing for something I don't feel I'm guilty of, that they, their evidence is just the television show and what we showed on the television show about the journey of this tortoise having these bionic limbs, which, again, and I still feel to this day very much that uh, I was trying to do the right thing. Remind me, because I thought it just occurred to me, that the first time I knew that this was going to be okay was outside the hospital where Noah was born. Remind me to come back to that, because that's very funny. Um, But the point here is that all of a sudden my world imploded and I didn't want to be a vet anymore. So going from wanting to be, spread the light of love, of being the, the vet, spreading love to, you know, the lady who wants to be a paramedic or the child who yeah. wants to be a And nurse. from the stage of the O2 a few hours before, yes. in a rock and roll Bono style, yes. with the rock and roll kind of physician fixing your voice like Bono might have done to him, you, are, you come crashing down to earth biologically, biochemically, emotionally, psychologically... This is a big old crash because of a, 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 on the surface of it, quite a simplistic matter. Well, that's it. To people outside of it, and I remember when I told you about it, we were in a pub and you're like, and I, I don't think you, again, I mean this with the utmost respect, how could anybody know what that means? And what it meant to me was, hang on, my whole career is going to be, everything's going to be taken away. And it wasn't about the career, it was about the inability to treat any animal whatsoever if this were to go against you. And all you meant was the best. So the question I was asking you is, there's always going to be people, in, in the book I talk about dumpers and drainers and... and uh, sappers and zappers. Sappers, no, sa- sappers and drainers and... No, dumpers and drainers and uh, something and remainers. Radiators and remainers. No, something the- and remainers. I thought it was quite good at the time. Okay. It occurred to me at five o'clock in the morning. I saw a lot of dawns when I was writing the Radiators and drains, aren't they? That's what they are. No, it was, it, it was um, dumpers and drainers and uh, so- pumpers and remainers. Right. That's what it was. And the, and the people you want to attract into your life are the pumpers and the remainers. Yeah. But how did you cope? And I don't mean to be disparaging because I have to say, because pe- people perhaps in my governing body or other vets may listen to this podcast, I love my profession. I love my governing body. I, lo- I think all vets are trying to do a good job. I genuinely believe that everybody wants the right thing for the animal. Of course I do. I say that in the book. Of course everybody wants the right thing. But I don't think the way to go about anything 
is not coming and talking to somebody. Just have a talk and, and find out the real facts and, and chat it through. But my question for you was, how do you did you deal with uh, dumpers and drainers or people that wanted to, for whatever reason, and that the deposition said that I had more responsibility to my oath because I was on telly. Yeah. Well, that didn't make sense to me because everybody has the same responsibility to your oath. So you're on radio or you're on television and maybe you're doing, don't forget your toothbrush perhaps, or maybe you're doing your Channel 4, um, what was it, TFI Friday? Yeah. So maybe you're doing that. What do you mean, what was it? What was that? What was, what was that thing? One, like that five in, comedy what, awards. What, what, what was that thing Jeez, that, that, that gave you so many awards and, and made you allowed you to meet Bono 700 million times that, that I've now missed three times? Because the day I was supposed to meet him was supposed to, when you were on the BBC and he was on the roof, I'll never forgive myself for this, I was supposed to fly to America that morning to give a lecture. And, I could, and that's workaholism. I could not let the lecture down and I missed seeing the best thing that would have ever happened in my life. That's workaholism. Anyway. It's also I, ma- quite masochistic as well. Well, it was bizarre. I mean, I just felt this huge moral responsibility to, n- to not give up on my commitment. and Ridiculous. I could have seen Bono at the top of the BBC building. Come on. I would I would remember that forever. Anyway. you remember not seeing him for as long. Oh, so it's it's driven thing. me crazy for, for how many years now? 14 years. To be honest, it wasn't all that good. It, that was, it was in my head. It's amazing. No, it was the best thing I've ever seen. Like, why, bro? <laughs> you're just killing me. I just, I'll never, ever, 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 ever forgive myself for, for, for putting work before that. But anyway, I did uh, for whatever sense of responsibility. What I wanted to ask you is how did you cope? How did you cope with the haters and the begrudgers? Well, in many ways, depends what day what day it is, what, which way the wind's blowing. Sometimes you don't cope. Sometimes you go to the pub. Sometimes you, you're feeling pretty secure, so none of it bothers you. It's literally water off a duck's back. When I was younger, um, you know, I was part of the zeitgeist. The same headline for Don't Forget Your Toothbrush was published in the paper. I literally, it could, in the days... I don't think it was copy and paste days then. I don't think you could copy and paste something. I don't think that technology had been invented. But I think the first headline I read about, don't forget your toothbrush, was Evan's new Channel 4 show flops. <gasps> and the first headline I read about TFI Friday was Evan's new Channel 4 show flops. And neither, <laughs> and neither of them did, by the way. So, That's like my headline, Supervet walks out of Royal Wedding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No. Well, because you have to, otherwise you get done for loitering with intent because guests walk out of weddings. That's what happens. And by the way, you kept that a secret. We could, there's so much we can talk about today. That was the, that's the funniest bit of the book. Yeah. That, that, by, I, that, did, you not find, did you not laugh out loud when my shoes were so tight I was dying? Well, yeah, but you're already telling me the story. Huh? You're already telling me oh, the story. Oh, yeah, I had. They used to walk, you had to walk the long way around Windsor. By the way, not Windsor Castle, the whole of Windsor, because he went the wrong way. Anyway, so many stories. But I'll tell you, as far as the RCVS is concerned, which you start you start the the, the book off with this 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 um it's not a complaint. What would you call it? It's a accusation or whatever it is. I don't know what it's called. Um it's a reprimand, it's a what is it? Uh, it's a disciplinary a, a, a requ- um it's a request for a full disciplinary yeah, hearing. So you start the book off with that. Um, and you also talk, you talk about it, it keeps coming back again. It's a sort of shadow narrative in the book and it comes back fully at the end. But what Russell Brand said to you about that, I think was very instructive. You know, he said, I pray, I pray for the people who wrote or requested that, whatever it was. Um, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I pray for them. And you, and when he said that to you, there's a lovely 
page or two in the book where you you sort of got that. That was a, a light bulb moment for you, you know. And I think that um, somebody was asked about who would it have been. It was somebody horrible. It was like one of the greatest despots, dictators, you know, mass murderers of all time. And they said, what do you think about this person? And the Dalai Lama said, I love that person. <gasps> wow. Because first and foremost, a person is a human being. Um, because we have to love everything and everyone because then we, because if we don't, we can't love ourselves. And I may not have loved what they did and I may disagree and I may have thought it was evil, but I love that person. And that's what Russell was saying to you about. Yes. You know, and, and when you talk about the flow coming in your direction of accusations, you know, of you, they did this wrong and, you, did, you know, how can they say you had responsibility because you're on te telly? What you're doing is is you're, you are reacting to their accusations and the logic, the qualification of those accusations, as opposed to just taking a beat, you know, um, you know, you're not going to agree with them because if you agree with them, you you would there'd be no defence. So so you know, obvious fights are so perfunctory sometimes, aren't they? That you don't have to well, have them. Well, a, a big um, epiphany did happen in the chapter on empathy. In, which I've just got to in recording the, the audio book. It's early on in the book. And it was... To, and and I, I thought I knew what I was talk, writing about in Chapter 4, but I didn't until Kira's accident happened because I'd never been in the seat in my consulting room with my life flashing before me, the divorce I've had, the boss who's been horrible to me, my own cancer, the death of my mother, whatever else flashed in front of my eyes because my dog's been with me for 13 years. All of a sudden, I'm both the counsellor and, and the person being counselled. So for, in, the la in the last chapter, which strangely enough is the beginning because the book begins with the end, it's just irony beyond imagination, really, that that should happen. I mean, clearly, you, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but I finally empathised with everything and everybody in the last five weeks. Bizarre as that may sound, I suddenly saw, really, truly, what it was like to, as Dave Gahan, another of my rock heroes, says, walking in your shoes. I, I didn't really, I thought I understood, but I didn't really. And I tried so hard to empathise with the accusers and I, I, I tried really hard and, and invited them in and everything else. Uh, invited one of them in, and I guess behind it all, the sadness overwhelmed me. And I guess I was crying inside for a child that just, he, all I wanted to do was be vet man. All I wanted to do was save the animals and do the right thing. And the reason I took the letter out of the drawer and wrote about it in the book is that it's easy to push all your mistakes and and challenges. And even though I, don't, I definitely don't think this was a mistake, it was certainly a challenge. And all of the bad things that happen, let's say, in your life, and I would defend this till the cows come home, but you can leave that in a drawer. So it's funny because when you say till the cows come, you do know when the cows come home. <laughs> I, I've seen enough of cows coming home. Uh, but you can leave those life experiences in a drawer, can't you? Or you can hope that it brings someone else's someone else light. And that's why when 10 days before the, the book was due to be published and I knew it, was in no, it wasn't ready 
And it's still not ready. It's like one of those unfinished films that you put out because you, the distributor says you have to put it out. Well, they say no work of art is ever ready. No, it's not. It's not. It was never ready. It, it, was, it was never going to be ready mm. because of the trauma. And, and then in the end, it was the biggest trauma. It's the better, all the better for it. The way it ends, is it? Yeah, oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. It really, I mean, you know, it, it's it's a fantastic book all the way through, but it really comes alive at the end because it's a different pace. Like you say, it's written in real time. It's a, it's live and it's alive. As I said on the radio show, it's funny though, isn't it? Because you know, you quote yourself in that chapter about Kira. You know, and when you heard her bones crush under the wheel of that car, you screamed, "No!" You know, it was, and I could hear you screaming. It's like no, and it was like a part of you is dying because. Within Kira is 13 years of your life. And so... It's the entire practice, so, all of it. Yeah, so, and also all your emotion. It's all in her. And so, you know, it's what we identify with as well. And, you know, identification can be a terrible thing, but, it's, you know, it's, it's a thing that we all, we all sort of can, can sense, we can all connect to, because we all identify to something. It's when we over-identify with things that it becomes an issue. And we sort of, we think it's the safety in putting ourselves into something um, as opposed to putting ourselves within us. And also, it's easier to say, well, I'm, I'm the sum of this part whilst it's going well. And that's another problem because, you know, I was about to have all this taken from me, you said before, you know, and Kira was, you know, she was nearly killed under the wheels of this car. If you put all your identity into something, that's fine until that's threatened. And then when that's threatened, even though it's not you, because there's safety in it, which is why you did it in the first place, because in the end it becomes bigger than you because you put more effort into it, if that gets destroyed, you feel like you're going to die, well, which yeah. is the reason you did it in the well, first that, place. That's exactly right. But that is exactly the point that I think about Tony Stark and the Avengers. There's always, in any of those films, there's, there's a big jeopardy. The world's going to end for whatever reason and the team is going to get, get it, right? So, Kira... Um, in that moment of, I thought she was dead. You I mean, I, I just heard her body explode. I thought she was dead. And I'm kneeling in the yard just screaming. And then I go inside. I'm quite hysterical. I was like just a mess. My team just had to push me away. I was a gibbering wreck. But then the following day, when we found out that her urinary bladder had ruptured and her abdomen was filling with urine, she was becoming toxic and she was going to die unless we intervened, like, within... Now, I was in the hospital having a tet another jab in my ass, a tetanus jab. Uh, you see, it seems like it's... Your hairy Irish my ass. My hairy Irish ass. It, uh, it's been exposed one too many times this year. And I'm having a tetanus jab because she bit down on my hand as I tried to pull her head from under the car, and I just, like, went straight... I mean, there's a... I went straight that was a good sign that you said. Yes, it was a good sign because I thought, well, if she can bite, then her brain isn't damaged, but, like, the rest of her body is. Anyway... She's going to die. So I'm thinking, is this over-treatment? Because there are people that would say it was. She's 13 years of age. We're now, my colleague John, who's an amazing surgeon, I owe John Kira's life, and Ger, the medicine person, and Andy and the whole team. Yeah, of course. So they saved her life that day by opening her abdomen, draining her urine. I mean, she had the lining of her abdomen ripped off from inside her spine. Her kidneys and her liver were disrupted her bladder was ruptured my my bit which was after that was mending her broken bones even though it took several hours was more straightforward because that is what i do the the really life-threatening bit was the bit where john 
saved her life because she was going to die because of toxic shock. And then she had to have two blood transfusions. So I'm sitting in the ward of the cancer hospital for which I've borrowed millions and millions of pounds, thinking to myself, well, you're a workaholic because you're still paying back this debt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you think to yourself, okay, three things occurred to me. One, is would would other vets consider this over-treatment? Because she's 13, should, should I put her to sleep? Is she suffering beyond reasonable hope of redemption in an X period of time? And what is X period of time? Because we don't have to think about that in human terms because, you know, God bless anybody who's in that situation. We don't ever question it. I mean, I, ha- I hate to bring things up, but, you know, Michael Schumacher's in a situation and and I, I love, you know, what that man did. And none of us would think about any of those situations in human medicine, would we? So I don't, I, I'm just trying to draw parallels, not because of, Name and names, but because these are real ethical dilemmas for veterinary and human medicine going yeah, forward. You're, you're saying where's where's the sca- where where's the that? schism? Correct. And why did the schism occur in the first Correct. place? Because once upon a time it didn't exist. It did two hundred and fifty years ago. It didn't exist. And the whole point of this book is to try and make us think. So the first question I was asking myself in that ward, sitting with you, as you can see, a lot has happened in the last five weeks. I thought, is this overtreatment? Is some people going to consider this overtreatment? The second thing I was thinking is. I'm partly a workaholic because I borrowed so much money to do this. And sure, you could sell it. But if you sell it, what decisions are made then? Who makes those decisions? And what basis? are? I mean, I've spent many, 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 many thousands of pounds on my dog just now. Many. And people will say, oh, you can afford it. You know, you're so Well, you know what, mate? I'm just trying to make a living like everybody else. And then the third thing is, well... If this was my child, it would, it would, we wouldn't even be asking this question. We would just get on with what needed to be done. And um, So the fact that you're questioning it yourself surprises you? No, it doesn't surprise me because I question it every day in my consulting room. What surprises me is that my, all the medical professions need to come together and they need to grasp the nettle. And the nettle is that procedures happen across the land every day and who's the adjudicator of ethics in all of those situations? And and should I be required to fill out an ethics adjudication form or should Dominic Cummings be required to fill out an ethics adjudication form when he does something and somebody else doesn't? No, everybody should be... It's the same rule for everybody. I have no issue. I have zero issue with the filling out of the, the paperwork or the going through the necessary loops. But I think it should be the same. If, and the qu- same question should be asked. If you've done a one-day course and you're cutting into the shin bone or the tibia of a dog to mend a cruciate ligament, well, is that ethics dilemma different mm. than somebody with 15 years of experience doing a complex procedure? Well, that's an interesting question, is it not? Yeah, because you're, you're, you're full of conflict, aren't you? You are conflicted, um, as, as many of us are, but you're, you deal with it. It's your job to deal with it because it's dilemma, moral dilemma after moral dilemma after moral dilemma. And you know the legal case, you know um, uh, the, your professional, your profession's um take on some things you you push the boundaries wherever you can you lean into things that you know well no i don't do it whenever i can i do it when i feel that what we have is suboptimal and doesn't give good Sorry, results i didn't mean I, yeah i know what you meant but what's I, interesting i know you have to be very i careful. get quoted out of I know, context I know, I know. but but it is interesting 
Because always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got, as, you know, is a ubiquitous phrase among yep. self-help people. But the reality is it could be crap. You know what I mean? Fine. Okay, so let's do the same thing and it's crap. And let's not move forward at all. And by the way, meanwhile, at the Royal Marsden, they're doing the most up-to-date cancer treatment for your mum. And you don't want that for your dog? Of course you want that for your dog. Has anybody ever asked the public, do they want the choice? Do you want the choice of treatment? Do you want the choice of surgeon? Do you want the choice? It's your money, by the way. You earned it. You can build a kitchen with it or you can spin on your dog. Kira's my baby. I'm going to spend on my dog. I love it. I love it. I mean, you are dealing, you know, the the overarching uh, um, headline or heading that we could could, um, skyrite over this conversation is you're dealing with the madness of human beings, which is mad. Which is crazy. I mean, that's that, that deflates all books like this, all arguments like this, all conversations like this. Yeah, but human well, I are... think we're delusional. Of course, we're delusional because we try to substantiate and justify the world we have created because we have created it. Hence, fake truths, half truths, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and made up lies. Yuval Noah Harari's book, *Sapiens*, yes, answers all this. Yes, because you know the only reason that we have to push against systems and societies um, is because we collectively agreed for those systems and societies to occur in the first of place. Of course we did. And because the sort of votes, that there's never been a re-election for each of those separate ideas, and there are millions of them, um, then... And the we're, more we're mechanisms of communication we have and the more complex our communication gets, the less we communicate. Most importantly, with ourselves. Yeah, now we sound like two old duffers. We've got to stop this. Um, not stop the podcast, just stop this bit of it. Right, so here's a question, Noel. Do you actually want to be a vet? Yes, I do. Um, and I vacillate in the book between thinking it's the best thing since sliced bread and I'm so fortunate and, oh, my God, how can this happen? I don't want to be a vet anymore because I don't want to get up and go through this pain every day. Why am I bothering? It doesn't seem like anybody else gives a damn. Am I allowed to say damn in a podcast? I guess I am. I'll tell you what it is. I'm 52 and the string is getting shorter and there are other things I'd like to do with my life that I think, like write Vetman, for example. But it's only getting chronologically shorter. It could be deeper and therefore seem longer. Yes. So don't worry about the time. Worry so, about what you're going to do so with So I'm very fortunate to be a vet. I just wish that it was a little bit easier to do the right thing every day, what I truly believe is the right thing. And it's not, it's not, it's not. There's so much. I, I think ultimately, and I say this in the book, and I don't make any apologies for saying this, and I think this is really, you know, it's potentially ruffles some feathers, but when have I not rocked boats? <laughs> I worry we that we can't move forward with financial vested interests, that we can't move forward with ego vested interest and that we can't move forward with a double standard if we truly want to do the right thing for animals and if and i'll finish this thought process here we truly want to do the right thing for humans because by the way every drug whether it's prednisolone or otherwise and every implant whether it's your knee cartilage of the future which you will need my friend uh, or something else and you better pray on by your side uh, so any of that comes from research experimental animals but we we conveniently 
forget or like me sublimating all the stuff from my childhood we conveniently sublimate that because it's an awkward difficult thought and by the way if animals give us all of that and if 75% of all new infections come from animals and corona came from animals it's time to wise up and live on the same planet with them and give them some respect you've been to see Tony Robbins how many times yes I have a lot of times how many times well, it's funny because you, I heard, I don't know who was talking. Was it you that was talking about? Oh, yeah. It was on your radio. I, I, by the way, you and I spend, you and I, I get up, I go to bed when you get up. Because you get up to come to this radio show at the same time I'm going to bed. We should share a flat. So I... Get half the price. We, we would live perfectly together. We'd never see each other like all of this year. So anyway, I often catch the tail end of your show because I will wake up to, to... Let's say I've been up till three. Then I'll get up at a quarter to nine. I'll talk, and you'll usually have your one guest just before nine and another guest before ten. And I heard you say... And I turn it on as I brush my teeth and try and find an underpants. And uh, I, I, you're the, the purveyor of underpants, as it is. So I uh, listen to you sometimes. Not always, because sometimes I can't be bothered. Um, but uh, I do listen to you. And I heard you say, oh, Anthony Robbins had to abandon that walking on fire thing because there was too much litigation and everything else. And, and it was just difficult. And I do like Anthony Robbins, except when he goes into Awaken the Giant Within and, and a bit of the more airy-fairy stuff. And by the way, his stuff is brilliant. But, you know, I mean, he's making billions from all this. But fundamentally, fundamentally, you look at any of these people from Zig Ziglar to Anthony Robbins or now to, to Eckhart Tolle, who I, I quote in the book, who is a different kettle of fish. I get that. I get that. Not a motivational speaker, but a deep thinker. He, he is the kettle. They, yeah. are, they are the fish. Well, I think what my point is that all of them bring something incredibly important, and that is to make you think. So I've seen Robbins maybe four times. I remember seeing him for the two-dayer. And I've, I've wanted to do the five-dayer, but I, I just never made the commitment. We should tell people who he is first. Well, he's a, an American... A uh, guy who came up through his teenage years and had a weight problem and then got got bullied for it and decided that he needed to find his way out of it. And he developed, a, and he had a difficult childhood, actually. And he developed a, a mechanism of coping, found he was quite good at speaking, and ultimately ended up being one of America's m most prominent motivational speakers to the point that he's flying in his helicopter over... A uh, whole traffic jam, and he asked, "Why is there a traffic jam coming here?" Well, they're coming to see you, Anthony. And then he's advised everybody from Clinton through to uh, Gorbachev, and 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 everybody in between. And uh, I think you know what I think about Anthony Robbins. I think he's got more aware of indulging in the ego being a, a not so good thing over time. And I think he's better now than he's ever been. Well, I wouldn't know because I've never seen him. I've seen um, I'm Not Your Guru and things like that. It's a yeah. great film. I recommend people watch it. His books, for, to me, they, they're sort of transcripts of what he does on his um, seminars or his, his, his weekend retreats. But he is very evangelical. I think he's very good. I think he's very talented. You know, I think it's interesting because Eckhart is like um, the monk, you know. In... Did you see that Royal Albert Hall, Eckhart? Were yeah. you there that I day? I was there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we never met. 
like is often the case, we're the same place and we don't meet. Yeah, I thought it was okay. I thought it was. I, we left at half time, to be honest. Oh, you did? Yeah. Um, but by the way, he's still my number one, yeah. without question. But he, he's the antithesis of Tony yeah, Robbins. Well, he's just quiet. He just sits there. But also, he, he said the same. He's had the same ninety minutes for well since he wrote the Power of Now, which you reference in your book yeah. quite early on. And it's so funny because my favorite review of his uh, of him was from him. Um, and he was referencing somebody from the New York Times who came to see him in the 90s and said, oh, my goodness me, this guy's got it. It's all about the now. He is the man. This is the message. And then the same guy went to see him 20 years ago, and he said, well, he's still saying it's about the now, you know? Change the record. No, but it is about the now, and it's yeah, still the now. But, but to come full circle, and I told you to remind me about this, but you didn't, I, 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 where Noah was born... Uh, at the hospital, and I remember being, going there the first day. Remember after he was delivered, and yeah. your room was full of chocolates, and you said, "Eat some chocolates, mate." I just, just did too much chocolates, <laughs> and uh, I remember looking at little Noah and thinking about you know the now and about creating a life, and you know knowing what you and Natasha had been through, and and getting to that point, and now you have four ankle biters around you, which is incredible, and also knowing about your backstory and how that wasn't easy for you in the earlier part of your life. I uh, had the phone call from the lawyer because my uh, the person who looks after my media stuff is on the same street as that hospital. And I was looking up at the window in which Noah was delivered when I had the phone call about the legal case to say, you're cleared. And I thought, and I looked up at the beginning of Noah and I looked and I thought to myself, well, this is just the beginning. And... In terms of nowness, the the challenge with nowness is we can talk again till the cows come home. My next book's going to be called Till the Cows Come Home. <laughs> and uh, I want to read the book that's titled The Cows Have Come the Home. The Cows Have Come Home. Noel's yeah, cows yeah, have yeah, come. Yeah, I can't yeah. wait for Noel's cows to come it's, home. It's going to be great. I'm going to be there that day. Yeah. Uh, well, it was either going to be that or you can teach an old dog new tricks. But no, we, the, the we cows have cows come have home. come home. Yeah. I like it. I like it. So the cows came home in that moment because. I think nowness is not something you strive for. It's something that occasionally you're lucky enough to experience. I remembered it in that room with Noah. I was just totally present in awe of this baby that had come against the odds, like in awe. And again, I stood there on the street thinking, wow, you know, there's an Irish phrase that I could use there beginning with F, me. Uh, this is amazing. I'm standing on the street thinking, well, this is just the beginning. And that really was the beginning of the book. That was that was why I thought, okay, I'm going to try... Because, yeah, I've, I've, I've read a zillion books from Robbins through to Tolly, through to Daniel Coyle and all that stuff about reprogramming your brain. But none of it works unless you stop taking yourself too seriously. None of it. And I took, I've taken myself seriously for 40 years. Two, I mean, up my own, there's a medical term, sphincter. And... Uh, <laughs> Which one? That, well, that's we have legal. several, don't we? That's legal, I think. It's a legal term. But you yeah. can't crawl in there yeah. and stay in there mm. because then you're just deluding yourself, which... Uh, so you get covered in shit. Well, you become, you become, when it hits the fan, you're doing it to yourself. And and I've realized that the hard way. And I've, you know, in my personal and other life, I've made tons of errors that had I known what I know now, I wouldn't have done. But you know what? 
all I can do is be today. I'm, I'm here in a studio today, right now. And I could walk outside this building and fall down the stairs in the local tube and not die. Not again, not again. Uh, but I'm just saying. You've done enough falling down I'm just saying that anybody listening to this may feel, you know, I'm having a bad day. Things are not going too well for me. This is, this is Well, there is light, but first you have to get over yourself. And this entire book for me, it should have been called Getting Over Yourself, actually. I like, I, I like the title, How I Almost Saved My Life. It's better. It's more, more engaging. Well, no, of course. I'm joking. But that's what it means. Animals save my life because they've allowed me to take myself less seriously. Take yourself, not yeah. you, yourself. Yeah, exactly. Okay. If Eckhart Tolle is the king of Zen, I, for me, he is the king of Zen. He's the king of living in the now. The queen of Zen, which is so ironic, is your mum. Mm. And so, like, you have the most Zen mum I've ever come across from a mum point of view, right? And you have a lot of Zen mates. I don't count myself one of them. I'm thoughtful, but I'm not Zen. I would love to be. I aspire to be Zen. But your mum is unbelievably Zen, right? And your dad, who was totally committed to work, um, didn't really deal in emotions, okay? So he was a bit, he was a lot like you, but what he, he parked, he said, well, I'm going to give everything to the animals. And, and to, to what I do, I get up in the morning, I go to work, you know, I have children, they can see what I do. They can learn from behind, if you like, by, you know, by what I do, but not by me teaching or telling them what to do, by seeing what I do. So you have your Zen mum and you have your unap- unapologetic workaholic dad, right? And you're, you're the sort of, you're one of the offspring of that combination, aren't you? And so your dad's all right, because he's, he's made a deal with himself that he's not going to deal in emotion, Ever. And he didn't till his dying day, from what you've told me. And your mum is going to deal it, live in the here and the now, which means she's never going to fear death, right? And so you talk about legacy all the time. Legacy is about, you know, virtual immortality, um, leaving something behind, leaving the world better than how you left it, but being conscious of the fact that's what you're trying to do, which is a little bit, you know, sort of a, a manifestation of a fear of death. You, you, talk about the fact you want to engage in real life and emotion but your dad never did so you are talk talk about being caught between rock and a hard place yeah well i i i'm i managed to get home to see mammy uh just when lockdown eased here and in ireland and it was only i could only go out and in and out in the same day yeah pretty much like you and i did when we, we when we went but i mean you say that but also i mean respect to minnie your mother uh who i the, the biggest honour of my life was doing her elegy, you know? Seriously. And I genuinely mean that because she was my mum here. And my mother knew that. And actually, the best event that I have ever been to, and I'll, I'll come back to your point, the best physical event, like entertainment event, I've ever been to was in your mum's living room when I brought Kev the guitarist from... <laughs> Cornwall uh, to play on your mum's sofa to play Vincent and other greatest hits that Rita and Minnie had chosen because I had got some uh, jelly sweets from Harry and Meghan that were too posh to for anybody to consume except your mum. And I sent some to my mum and, and brought some to your mum and then we FaceTimed so that they would hand a suite to each other <laughs> while Kev played Vincent. 
another great madrigals. And I went to make the tea. And you went to it. <laughs> but it was brilliant. That, that was the best event I've ever been to in my life. And Kev was like, shall I play another one? I'm like, yes, of course, play another one, Kev. But the great thing about Kev was um, I met him when he was busking outside the very first One Live Festival when Genesis, um, Mike and the Mechanics were going to be on stage. And he's a big Mike Rutherford fan, so he just wanted to stand there and listen. And my mum arrived and thought he was part of the entertainment and she felt really important bringing Kev into the... And the security guys, of course, let anybody in with my mum. So your mum and my mum formed a band with Kev in the field by the side of the stage before Mike and the Mechanics. It was priceless. And that's my mum's favourite picture. She has it by her, by her chair of your mum and my mum with the guitar, Kev's guitar. But but to come to your point, both your mum and my mum were Zen and also, I would imagine, married to men who were very different to that. And my mother said to me, the most important thing she, she said to me the last time I was over, because I'd written the prologue to the book and I read it to her and she said, and in the book I said, well, maybe... Maybe all of this is now too late. And I thought she was falling asleep on the chair and because she has like some scoliosis now which bends her head, uh, spine. And uh, all of a sudden she looked up like that and, and looked at me from the side and said, it's never too late, Noel, it's never too late. And I think that that is just a wonderful message of Zen for the book that anybody at any stage, whether you're 84, she's 91, so whether you're 91 or you're 21, it's never too late. She, well, she's, she's so tolle as well, but she's older than him, so she's ahead of him. She says on page 362, um, she says, Sure, Noel, I'm grand. I'm grand in the here and now. I mean, that's like, you know, that's Ram Dass speak from the 60s. And it's from your mum, who's still around in Ireland. I'm grand in the here and now, Noel, because the here and now is all we've got. I want for nothing and I've never wanted for anything, Noel, because it just ties you down and you can't take it with you anyway in the end. I mean, that's sort of the opposite of how I've lived and how you're living. You know, you have this vast company, you have this vast empire, you you have this vast creation and she's a, a, an extremely simple lady. And when yes. we went over on your birthday for that for that day, you know, and we went in the living room and she didn't know we were coming. You know, and she, she still lives in the very, very small, you know, not Richard Courtesy romantic farmhouse at all that you were born in. It's really small. It's in Ireland. And small cottages in Ireland are the smallest cottages in the world. And the stove that your mummy and daddy used to cook on is the same stove. And that keep you... lambs warm and alive. Yeah. yeah. Your sister cooked Sunday lunch on that day yeah. for us. And this is proper. And we went into the living room. She was reading a Bible. And she was so peaceful, so peaceful, a woman of faith. You know, and she doesn't fear death. And you talk about this thing called not internalization, but the opposite, eternalization in the book. Um, and she, she again, she, 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 there isn't a book, but if she there was, embodies she, she'd have written it. What is that? Um, actually, I'm really pleased you picked it up. The, the, I, I, the first chapter of the book's called internalization, which is what I do all the time. I internalize all the angst, all the. And the end of the book is eternalization, which isn't so much finding a legacy. It's about being at peace, regardless of whether you are here or somewhere else. And she has often said to me, but especially on this last time, my bags are, are, are have been packed for some time for when, whenever he calls. 
And she said, and uh, you know what? I don't actually need any bags because where I'm going, there's no baggage. And her philosophy is magnificent because she's not attached to anything material or anything of life except as an eternity. And she truly is truly, and I mean this most sincerely, is looking forward to lying beside daddy again because she thinks of all the wonderful things that they didn't, ha they didn't have time because he was too busy working and that they can experience again in eternity. And she believes, I asked her actually, Mammy, do you, do you actually believe in the afterlife? And she said, no, no, it's not after and all. It's now. And she's like, it's as part of this living room as me and you, you know? And, and, and it's funny because this past Friday night, I was due to do the Late Late Show in Ireland uh, with Ryan Tuberty. And we used to revere the Late Late Show when Gay Byrne did it in my childhood. And it was a national institution. Everybody, half of Ireland just would stop and watch the show. So the first time I was on it was like the most massive honour. Second time I brought Mammy. No, it was, maybe it's the first time, I can't remember. Anyway, she moved the wheelchair ramp uh, back into the studio because they'd moved it out for the for the reunification of Riverdance. And it was like really rock and roll for her and it was brilliant. But I, I rang her because um, the cameraman... <laughs> It basically, there was loads of problems with sound and I had no ear pods and I had to drive from the practice to my house, which isn't that far, to get ear pods. I rang Mammy on the way and I said, I'm going to gonna visit visit with, with Ryan tonight. And she said, oh, that that's amazing and, and that that's wonderful. Um, uh, but uh, uh, the thing is that um, uh, I've lost my train of thought now. What were we talking about before that? We were talking about how uh, she was uh, talking about... Oh, oh yes, 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 yes. It, 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 um, it was... Um, oh, eternity, but it was, it was something she said. I'm trying to think now what she you, said. You took it to the Lele show. You went over yes. there. You were going to do it, but you didn't do it last Friday. Yeah, no. And then she said... Um, we were talking about her being eternal and we're talking about her... It's unusual for me to use... To, to lose it. Like, something else came in. What else came yeah, in? Yeah, no, but but, but some, something really important has just come in. And I, it, genuinely, I've just had this gi giant flash in my brain about what she said. Oh, that's what it was. Oh, I remember now. Because she was there in her wheelchair, which was her last big public outing when she went to the Late Late Show. I said, to, I know what it was now, my goodness. I said to her, I'm sorry you can't be there, Mammy. And, and she said, sure, I am there now. I'm like, wow. Because yeah. she's everywhere. She's everywhere. Because <laughs> she's cool. Because <laughs> she's here now. And, she, <laughs> and oh, and the other, I know what the other thing was. <laughs> right, back, back, back to where she, we were. She said to me in the car, because she said, I've heard about Kira, because I, I purposely didn't ring her, because right. I was too upset. And she said, Noel, you need to learn. Oh, my God, it's all coming back now. This is why I just had that blockage. She said, oh, 
Yeah. In the past, she would have said, when I was a child, perhaps it's only a dog or it's only a cat because we grew up on a farm. And it was a very perfunctory attitude. To she didn't say that. She's, and and it, it blew me away because I was in the car driving. I was on the hands-free. And she said, no, you, I know she's your best friend. But you have to learn to let go. And the thing you need to understand is that you're not letting go. You're just holding her tighter. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Which I thought was amazing for her to say, having grown up on a farm, you know? But you're her little boy and she knows you better than anybody else. Better than yourself. Yeah, yeah. You're not letting go, you're just holding her tighter. Maybe because you feel like care is really all you've got. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Oh, did she, care, is the, care is your truth. Yes, because I've told her the truth always. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she's been the one constant and the one that never left when I was being an arse and the one that was always there to hear all my secrets and the one that licked my face, whether it was sweat <laughs> or tears. She did. Yeah. And she does. And I'll go back to her now and please God, she'll be around for a little while. But as Mammy says, you've got to learn to let go. And that's such a powerful metaphor for life, isn't it? Yeah, let go. I mean, we t we talked about it um, a couple of weeks about, about this, this let, you can let go or you can forgive. But if you let go, you don't have to forgive, you know. Um, and l letting go, I suppose, is the first part of a process. Um when you get to, I think your mum doesn't have to let go because she doesn't attach. Correct. You know that is the whole point, and it was so funny. It was so funny. You couldn't make it up because she said, "Now I know that Saint Christopher's busy with all them Corona people, <laughs> so uh, I've been praying to Saint Benedict and Saint Dominic because they have time on their hands yeah, at the moment. She's got her numbers. Yeah, and she has a direct line to the pearly gates." And then I turn up. What was truly hilarious was they said they were going to send a cameraman to, to do the thing. The cameraman realises five minutes before we go live to the Late Late Show, he can't get a signal to broadcast the, the image. And I'm like, mate, like, what do you mean he can't get... Is that not the first thing you check? No, is this not what you do for a living? And, but, but it was a mad, it was madness and he's a lovely guy and I felt so bad. So he runs upstairs and he says, well, I can get perfect signal here. And I'm like, mate, it's a corridor. <laughs> and it, so it's pandemonium in the last three minutes. We're going live to Ryan. Last minute. Right. Speaking but, but, your language, but, mate. But we're going live to yeah. Ryan, who you know, I guess. Yeah. And, and Ryan's like the nicest man. He's a lovely guy. The nicest man in the world. And he, so he comes on. I can't hear him because we have to go Skype all of a sudden and they can't get the sound from his studio to come through the Skype to me. So all I can hear is a Dalek. It's like... And, and so he goes, he goes, no, do you want to do this? Because we either have to do it or we got to cancel the slot. And I'm like, yeah, of course we're going to do it. And he said, well, can you lip read? And I'm like, of course I can lip read. I'm a vet. I'm the super vet. <laughs> I've got superpowers. So I lip read him for 12 minutes, which was no, awesome. It's you so funny. Not. So I heard him going, and, 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 and sometimes, or not, 
and read the rest. And I don't know what came out because I haven't seen it because it's on Radio Telefish Aaron. But I hope it was all right. <laughs> so it was bizarre. It was utterly bizarre because he was just pre-recording it before he went on to do the live bit and then he was going to slot it into the show. And But he only had those 12 minutes. Um, so St. Dominic and St. Benedict were probably looking down on us. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, your mum, you know, she's 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 not in the best of health, but she hasn't been for ages. She might be playing a trick on us. You know, we, we, if we had to take bets a couple of years ago, a few years ago, about who would be here last, it would be my mum, not yours. Yeah. And and that was the case for a long, long... My mum would say, oh, you know, poor Rita. Yeah. You know, she's going to be all right. Yeah, she's, and my mum would she, say... She's not long for this world. And my, my mum would say, how's Minnie? Uh, and all the time. I flew over as an emergency because... And she said to me, no, did you think I was going to die? And I said, yes, I did. Um, and she said, but sure, you don't need to rush over for that. For me. Oh, my God, what a selfless thing to say. I went for myself. Which is also okay, because she didn't say that wasn't okay. No, she didn't. But what a an amazingly eternal thing to say. What, what a very free thing to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because she hasn't been out of that living room very often in the last well, 20 years. Well, she hasn't been out of her living room at all for the last four years. Right. Because but, she goes from the chair to the bed. But the walls don't confine her. Well, no, she doesn't. She wants to go. She said, I want to go out of this room in a box. And uh, by the way, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, but there, yeah, because there is no room. No, and there is no box. <laughs> so, so the reason you're so frustrated and you built up this empire is because you got this fucking totally zen mum. You go, how do you do this? How do you sit in this farmhouse, freer than any other human being that's walking the planet at the moment, in private jets or surfing on a beach or playing football or? Doing the best they can do with whatever they've got. How do you do? I look. No, if I was your mum's little boy, I would also have the biggest referral veterinary practice on the planet because I wouldn't know what else to do. No. <laughs> so you have all my sympathy, my oh, friend. She said. She also said. To, she also said to me. Um, uh, I, I said, um, "How are you doing?" And uh, I, I'm going to do. You know, when I said I was going to do Ryan's show, she said, sure, I have the best show on earth here every day in my room. Yeah, of course. Because she doesn't need any other show. Yeah, And she, by the way, she doesn't say these things lightly. It's not like, you know, she can't stop no, talking. it's not flipping. She, she, she's, she's a woman of very few words. Yeah. But they're so succinct when yeah, they come out of her mouth. Thank God. Aren't they? <laughs> yeah. But I suppose the thing is, you know, if you... If you if you if you go to school if you go to Zen the Zen High School Zen County High School and the first minute of the first lesson from the Zen master you don't get and you think I need to go another way because I'm never going to get this the second you used to turn left instead of right it's the problem's only going to get worse isn't it and that's sort of where we are well I, I often think that life presents lots of crossroads and the problem for me. It's a double-edged sword being a surgeon because when I reach those crossroads, I have to choose left or right. I have to amputate or save. I have to put to sleep or do something different. And therefore, I've never stood at the crossroads long enough to actually be just there where all roads lead from and lead back to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I have to choose. Yeah, yeah. 
And therefore, what I think what's happened is I just keep choosing and choosing and choosing and choosing and choosing and then go with, and you get swept away in the current. Yeah. It's also letting off the steam, isn't it? Because you you have to choose left or right, but in a way, there's a there's a liberty or a liberation in the fact you get to choose. Because whilst we're here, waiting to not be here anymore, not your mum because she she doesn't do form, um, then we are literally just, well, what do we do? Well, we just try and fill the time and space with stuff, versionary with stuff, with stuff that we think is so important until it's not important at all. So you know the the 80-20 rule is quite interesting. So. The 80-20 rule is, you know, you get 80% of your enjoyment or your fulfillment um, via 20% of your effort. And the other 80% is just fat and it's, you know, it's it's waste, it's wasted effort. And what you can do is you you then expect, because of our egos, we then expend the 80% of our sort of um, uh, reserve um, from our 100% trying to get the last 20%, trying to get perfection. Yeah. And actually, if you sort of say, okay, well, 80% is good enough. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to swap the swap. I'm going to, I'm going to convert. I'm going to recalibrate my 80% into a brand new hundred percent. I'm going to forget the 20% that I don't have. And I'm going to then have the 80% reserve of my effort to do something else with. So when you talk about, you know, you, you are willing to give up parts of your practice or parts of your, your current, um, Empire is the wrong word, but whatever you a, 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 a better word than that that I can't think of at the moment. If you were to give that up now, in as much as letting go, like your mum might say, or passing it on, right? Um, it would still be pretty fantastic, and then you would have all your energy to to go again, to go again, and 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 write the next chapter or the the next book or the beginning of the next book, because you can't keep retelling this story, you know. One can't keep retelling the story. So I was at the BBC for 13, 14, 15 years. Seems like 13, 14, 15 minutes now. Came here, you know, I'm not saying, you know, told you so. I'm really not saying that. But honestly, one of the best decisions I ever made. Just, just you know, it's, it's a new, it's, we're moving into a new town or a, a new energy, if you like. You're not tempted? Yeah, so what you said at the beginning of that thought process was really profound. Because I do talk in the book about... The day you left the BBC, you said you you didn't want to be a mountain observer, you wanted to be a mountain climber. Because I was in a hotel room somewhere preparing for a show in Hull and the other book wasn't ready. <laughs> yeah, deja vu. Uh, but what you said earlier on was um, perfectionism. And that is the Achilles heel, <laughs> again, to use a great orthopedic pun, of all surgeons. Because that's what you always, always, always strive for and never, ever, ever achieve. And your mindset, my mindset, is made up of one million, trillion, trillion, trillion neurons all trying to be perfect. Never going to achieve any of it. History repeating itself. My dad's never going to say, well done. It's never going to happen. So you're chasing this impossible dream, but you hope... That I genuinely hope that I can inspire the people to take over it. But as you said, the choice is clear. You, could, I could walk away from it all tomorrow and free myself up to do something else. But the problem with that is that it's unfinished business. And I worry about... I worry about... I worry about the Avengers... I worry about that their mission isn't isn't complete, but I also worry that we may not be able to complete it anyway because of the way the world is going. Yeah, but how many instalments of the Avengers were there? 
Oh, a zillion. Not just one. Yeah, so this yeah, is the first instalment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe. I don't know, maybe. No, I get that. And I certainly, certainly, I'll tell you what, what's what been really, uh, I won't say cathartic, because that's the wrong word. What's been a bit of a revelation to me is the last two months of putting out what I thought was an incomplete book. I never would have done that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, by what you said earlier in this little chat, I mean, of course, there's repetition. I didn't actually read it all. I hadn't time. And it's a little bit long maybe in bits. Maybe there's a bit too much science in bits. Maybe it's better in bits than it would have been had I read it. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But it was the unfinished article written in real time. Yeah, but also what it's great that you say this because <laughs> I'm smelling something and I don't want to let it go. So you are right. It could, it could have been shorter. It could have been less repetitious, right? But the 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 percentage of extra effort to to then fix something that is unnoticeable to most people who are going to read it isn't worth it. Correct. That's the point. That's the revelation. That's the point. So that's the revelation. And, and actually... Never let perfection be the enemy of good enough. Yeah. Well, it's a French phrase, isn't it? That um, better is often the enemy of good. Um, but the revelation is exactly what you said to me in a pub less than one year ago, the last time we saw each other. And it isn't about giving up or letting letting stuff go. It's about the realization that you can do your best at some of that. And actually, one of the things you said, I thought, which was really, really rather profound for you, was, uh, was uh, uh, I give 100% of my effort when I'm in the radio studio, and then I give it all when I go home. And I thought, wow, okay. All right, well, that's interesting, because I've only ever given 110%, and then there was nothing left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, look, please, God, I'm trying to drag this ridiculously scattered, obsessive, compulsive, mad brain. (laughs) Brilliant brain. Brilliant brain. It's funny you leave out the positives, isn't it, there? Brilliant, sophisticated, funny. I find it very difficult to empathise. Well, sorry. Empathise with myself. I think you're quite a nice person. So I... Quite. quite. uh, Anyway, I'm trying to to contextualise that and and be better in a life. And please, God, the book helped me to do that and will help other people to do that. Just got to say before we wrap up, and we will... um, about about this legacy thing, you do say the word legacy in here. You say you, you use the word legacy and you use the word you often use the phrase, you know, trying to change the world. Why 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 do you why do you want a legacy? Why do you want to change the world? I just think it's so damn unfair. I I I, I, I look. I really really people think. Oh well, no, you're just being preachy, preaching from the pulpit again. Well, you know what? God, just just. Go away if you don't want to hear it. But this is what I have to say. I think it's really unfair that we have one planet that we know of that's habitable at the moment. And I get it. I understand exploring other planets. And I refer to that a lot in the book, Intelligent Life, blah, blah, blah. 13.8 billion years, blah, blah, blah. Lots of dark matter, blah, blah, blah. And and that actually came out in the end because it was like there's, you know, most of the universe we know nothing about. 
and then we don't look at the light matter inside dogs and cats at all. But here's why it's unfair. Go. It's unfair because we bring children into this world that we are messing up and we ignore the animals that can help us to solve that by killing them. And what I mean by that is, in the broadest sense, we kill elephants, we kill rhinoceroses, we kill the planet through global warming and we refuse to... You interviewed Rod Stewart and Rod said, oh, it's, it's, it's a bit late. And uh, Rod is, is my other friend, Rick's biggest hero. He's an obsessive Rod fan. So if Rod said it's too late, oh my God, Rick's going to go into a depression. So I'm like, man, we're all screwed here. And you've said this before. Oh, I mean, it's going to be a tidal wave, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know what? That's all our fault because we could coexist on the planet. So the reason that it drives me insane is I can't deal with the unfairness that we take all the animals for granted when they're trying... Just because they don't speak English or French or Chinese doesn't mean they're not speaking. They're telling us from a lion to a a, a pangolin with or without coronavirus through a porpoise, through a dog, you are crazy. What are you doing? Bringing children and progeny, progeny into the world that you're messing up while you look for other planets. Oh, well done, civilization. And that drives me mental because on that level, on a global level, but also on a parochial level, it drives me crazy that human medicine moves on and on and on and on and on. And most human doctors never even think where the drugs and implants come from. Well, they come from an experimental animal, my friend, because you are my friend. And I, I want to understand where you're coming from here. But how come Mary's dog can't have that until the intellectual property and the patent rights run out 20 years later and they can suddenly have the cancer drug? Oh, really? Well, their brothers and sisters were killed to give you the cancer drug. That drives me mental. Why can't we move forward together and look at prostate cancer in dogs and prostate cancer in humans at the same time? Look, you and I are both of an age where that's a freaking potential for us. Why wouldn't we look at a clinical trial in dogs with 300 dogs with prostate cancer rather than giving dogs the cancer and then looking at them? Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So on the global level, on the parochial level that we need to learn about medicine in, in dogs and cats and pangolins and humans at the same time and, and look at naturally occurring disease as a model for human disease rather than just killing animals. And the, sec- and the third and final and the most important thing is, oh my God, this drives me mental. The whole concept of sentience. We think we're so clever, really, while people are making up lies all over the place and now people are going online and believe- investing. I don't know why I saw this on my news feed the other day while I was in the toilet. I saw that they're believing in virtual people. More than in real. They're looking at people who are... Ver- it's not even real. And we talk about sentience like we're the cleverest creatures on the planet. Nonsense. How, how can an elephant know that the person that saved them died and they're two days away and trek all the way to his house? Did someone ring the elephant and say, hey, mate, you're the guy who saved you from being electrocuted is dead. Do you want to go and visit his grave? No. The elephant f- knew... Because we're not the only sentient species. And the longer we have the arrogance and the belligerence and the nonsense to think that we are, the more we will destroy the world for your children who I love. You cannot have your four kids. in her- We are, we us, 
That's what I mean about legacy and that's why I'm driven. This is the fundamental reason. I just don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair to the animals and I don't think it's fair to your children. And if I can do anything, it's to make people think about that in this book. And if I've done that for one person, if I've made them think, and for another person that I've brought some light into their life if they're feeling lonely or sad or depressed like I've been or anxious or whatever else that goes with life, then it's worth writing the book. And even if it's imperfect, which I know it is, like everything else in life, this story is not More interesting, it's more interesting. The wrinkles and the crinkles, man. Yeah? It's out there, warts and all. And it's and it's raw and it's true and it's written as my thoughts are, which is uncensored. And you know what? If you don't, if you if if it's your cup of tea, drink it. If it's not your cup of tea, that's okay too. And I get that. But I do think that we have a lot of lessons to learn that animals could save our lives if only we'd listen. I really truly believe that. Okay, How Animals Saved My Life is Noel's brand new book. It's out now. Noel Fitzpatrick being the super vet. Thank you, pal. No, thank you, brother. I really, really... You know what? Man, <laughs> you're so... You, you just make me so raw. It's like you open every wound I ever had and gouge around with your hands inside with no knowledge of surgery whatsoever and pull out the guts and then ask me to examine them. And for that, I love you and appreciate you and always will. Thank you. Now, we could go to the pub, but they're all closed. (laughs) 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 Ah, Another time. Another time. Um, Well, give my love to Rita. Thank you. Thank you, brother. And thank you for everything. And Kira. And thank you for inspiring and me. And Ricochet as well. Yeah. Yep. The new kid on the block. Yeah, Ricochet, ricochet. Is, is a big, big gorgeous... Big isn't it? Big, gorgeous, Maine Coon, uh, b- f- fluffy, magical beast of Narnia that rescues me from the darkness by just walking up quietly behind me and going... <laughs> and all of a sudden, everything's fine in the world. <laughs> so simple. All right, that's it. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Super vet, superman, superhuman. That is Noel Fitzpatrick, one of my best friends in the whole wide world. And this has been How to Wow. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please rate and review. Buy his book, of course. Buy it for all your friends, all your family. I'm sure they have lots to sell, to spare. And not that it's not popular or anything, of course. Why am I saying all this? I've got to go, OK? I'm out of here. Please uh, subscribe as well. That that would help. Ta-da. Sorry. Ta-da!